This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 25, Leviticus chapters 1 through 3. Leviticus, uh, which comes from the Greek Luitikos, which means relating to the Levites, begins with God calling to Moshe from the tent of appointment. What follows are the primary set of rather explicit instructions relating to the korban, or as Fox renders it, quote, bringing near a near offering, and how an individual who desires nearness to God can proceed through the necessary steps, be it with a herd animal or a sheep or a goat. He is to bring the animal forward, a male, quote, holy sound to the entrance of the tent of appointment, and place his hand on it, Quote, that there may be an acceptance on his behalf to effect ransom for him. Then there is the slaying, the blood dashing, flaying, sectioning, wood arranging, innard and shin washing, and ultimate immolating on the slaughter site. Quote, for an offering up, a fire offering of soothing savor for Adonai. Incidentally, the donor is responsible for practically every phase of the near offering except for the blood rite and the burning of the animal. Fowl undergo a similar tearing open and blood drainage before being immolated on the slaughter site. But chapter 2 also explains about grain offerings, known as the mincha, and how the flour is combined with oil and frankincense before being brought to the priests who scoop out a scoopful before turning, quote, its reminder portion into smoke upon this slaughter site, a fire offering of soothing savor for Adonai. What remains after the fire belongs to the priests. One can also bring a grain gift baked in an oven, consisting of unleavened cakes mixed with oil or matzah wafers spread with oil, or prepared on a griddle, in, in which case the flour is mixed with oil and crumbled into bits. And as with the grain offerings, whatever remains from the grain gift after the fire belongs to the priests, quote, a holiest holy portion from the fire offerings of Adonai. Chapter 2 concludes with some additional notes about near offering recipes, no leavening, no date honey. They are fermentation agents. And please, salt liberally. Salt is a preservative. First fruits or budding grain also must be fired with oil and frankincense and turned to smoke by the priests. The next chapter focuses on the slaughter offering of shalom. Unlike the earlier near offering, one can bring a male or female, but the remaining process is the same. You got your slaying, blood dashing, flaying, sectioning, wood arranging, and ultimate immolating on the slaughter site. Quote, a fire offering of soothing savor for Adonai. But the chapter concludes with this sound culinary advice, quote, a law for the ages into your generations throughout all your settlements, any fat, any blood, you are not to eat. So there's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it. <laughs> to say it's really a tough sell teaching Leviticus. The approach put forth by a school where I taught years ago abstracted the text so much it was almost as if I wasn't actually teaching Leviticus but playing somebody who taught something resembling Leviticus on TV and all the kids wanted to talk about was the innards. This week's portion focuses on the spontaneously motivated sacrifices, the Ola, the Mincha, and the Shlamim. Next week's portion will focus on the offerings required for expiation, the chatat and asham. 
Chapters 6 and 7 will regroup these sacrifices in order of their sanctity and priority in the daily ritual from the most sacred, the Ola, Mincha, Chatat, Asham, to the sacred Shlamim. Um, what do these sacrifices have in common? Well, uh, they're, they're all mostly burning flesh from dead animals, except for the Mincha, which Philo of Alexandria uh, described as the poor man's Ola. But the reason for bringing them ties them together. The individual brings the Ola, or the Mincha, or Chatat, or Asham, or Shlamim, as a response to a need, one that cannot be scheduled. It could be emotional or religious in nature and utterly divorced from the rhythm of the seasons or the ebb and flow of the week or the call to pilgrimage. And yet, despite all the very clear and very formulaic instructions and the heavy involvement of the donor in the offering up, everything we read in Leviticus is really not for us. It's meant for a very small group of Jews, the Levites, and even then it's more for the Kohanim. Yes, the first Aliyah each Shabbat in traditional synagogues is set aside for the Kohen, and the second is set aside for the Levi, which might imply that the Kohen and, and, the, and the Levite make up one-seventh of the population each, or, or 14%. But even according to the census data described in Deuteronomy, Levites, of which Kohanim are a very small subset, might have only been something like 3% of the Judean Jewish population. Which reminds me of a joke man goes into his rabbi and says, Rabbi, you may have heard this, I want to be a Kohen. The rabbi replies, well, I just can't make you a Kohen. It's really, a rabbi doesn't have that kind of authority. And the man persists, but, but I really want to be a Kohen. So I'm going to leave this very large envelope with a very large donation to this synagogue on your desk. And then I'm going to step outside and give you some time to consider, and then I'll come back. Before the man turns to leave, the rabbi says, from the size of the envelope, you seem to be a very successful man. Why is it so important to you that you become a Kohen? The man replies, because my father was a Kohen and my grandfather was a Kohen. I want to be a Kohen too. <laughs> now that joke kills in the yeshivish crowd. But seriously, folks. Trying to figure out how many Jews or Kohanim and, and, and Levites was no easy feat then and, and didn't yield any definitive numbers. But today, with the help of science, we can find answers. Kohanim are a paternally inherited priestly class. So are, are, are the Levites. And geneticists have found that even though Kohanim and Levites are scattered across the Jewish diaspora, they share common ancestry. The Levites display evidence for multiple recent origins, with Ashkenazi Levites having a high frequency of a distinctive non-Near Eastern haplogroup. Comparisons with other Jewish and non-Jewish groups suggest that a founding event, probably involving one or very few European men occurring at a time close to the initial formation and settlement of Ashkenaz, is the most likely explanation for the presence of this distinctive haplogroup found today in more than half of Ashkenazi Levites. That said, it's estimated that Kohanim and Levites each comprise around 4% of the Jewish people. And I'll link to these, uh, some of these studies, at least, on the Facebook page and at thenextjew.com. So to put it in, in, in layperson terms, for every 100 Jews that cracks the spine on, the, on an edition of the book of Leviticus or of the Tanakh, the intricacies of this book have no practical application for 92 of them. And then, of course, there is this small thing about there not being a dwelling or temple or any form of ritual sacrifice 
um, being offered for the last 1950 years or so. But for some Jews, this is an obstacle that can easily be surmounted. If you go back to the time described in Leviticus, the Jews have yet to reach the land promised to them by the covenant of Abraham, and it's no spoiler to say that they eventually get there, and when they get there, they'll encounter the locals, and we'll discuss all that when we get to the book of Joshua. The portable dwelling will be set up somewhat permanently in Shiloh, but the specific site upon which Solomon will eventually build the temple in Jerusalem in Kings 2, um, that hilltop in the Judean hills, otherwise known as the land of Moriah, right, you know, at this stage in history, it sort of rises above what eventually will be known as the city of David from the north. And according to most of the research, it actually isn't even included in, in the city of David, and it belongs to the Jebusites and... I'm rambling. But anyway, the idea is that basically since Solomon built the temple and it was destroyed and rebuilt later by Ezra, um, a lot of things happened. But but as for now, like right now, um, you know, we have to sort of think back to the 7th century when Jerusalem was ruled by Muslim caliphs. And at that point, inspired by the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the Umayyad Khalif Abdul Malik built a monumental shrine on that spot, on that spot where um, Solomon built the temple. And it's shaped kind of like a stop sign, and it has a gold cupola. It's known as the Dome of the Rock. And it's the third holiest site in the world for the, one, the world's 1.6 billion Muslims. There's Mecca, there's Medina, and then there's Jerusalem. Which would make building a, a new third temple on, on that spot the spot of the first and second temples in order to renew, you know, ritual sacrifices, that'll be somewhat of a problem. But as I said, this is a real estate challenge, and it's not really a deterrent to a very small group of committed Jews who live in the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem. I began my book, End of the Jews, Radical Breaks, Remakes, and What Comes Next, with this group of people. That book, by the way, is still available where all good books are sold. Um, these folks, these, they, they call themselves the Third Temple Institute. They maintain a constant state of readiness. They're waiting for the right moment to begin construction of the Third Temple. And while they're waiting, Institute artisans have prepared all the vestments, the implements, the ritual objects that we've been talking about, you know, in the, in the, in the last kind of section of the Book of Exodus. And they're paying, they pay very close attention uh, in these sections of Leviticus. I mean, they run a Kohen school for the members of the organization who are Kohanim and, Le and Levites. So when the time comes, they can assume all the duties and responsibilities and the functions when that third temple is, uh, is up and running. And uh, they've also put into place some subsequent rabbinic interpretations of those precise verses, the most important of which are relating to animal sacrifice. So back when I wrote the book, if you had typed in the Hebrew word korban, that is, you know, the near offering, in in YouTube's search window, one of the first hits you would have found back when I was writing End of, End of the Jews, it would have been a 10-minute clip produced by the Third Temple Institute when they were demonstrating how to offer up the korban Pesach, or the Paschal Lamb sacrifice. Now, the Paschal Lamb is... is, is is different from the korban that we talked about so far, the olah, the uh, the the 
Mincha, etc. But because it's tied into a specific calendar date. But I mean, the process is the same, at least the slaughtering part. Um, it, it's and also the thing is that once it's been offered, you have to eat all of it on the first night of Pesach with some bitter herbs and matzah. But that's again, that's kind of quibbling at this point. You want to see the, the killing. So after some very brief explanations in this clip, there's some speeches, and then they, they actually do the shechita. They actually they do the ritual slaughter. And they do this kind of in uh, double time with a techno remix of Am Yisrael Chai playing in, you know, at around the six-minute point in the clip. All right, so that was Hava Nagila, but did you get the point? The the music drives the, the footage, and and then you see the rest of the process: the skinning, the gutting, the portioning out of the internal organs, and the and the clip kind of ends right before the animal is impaled and offered up on the fire. Now, the thing is, I used to eat meat, and I enjoyed it very much, and and now I don't eat meat anymore, and for a lot of different reasons. But not because I think killing animals is wrong. You know, life needs to feed on living things in order to survive. You know, my issue lies in the process. So perhaps what I'm about to say might come off as a bit militant, but, you know, meat is a package deal. Meat comes with history. It has an origin and a process where the cow or the lamb or the chicken or the pig becomes a meal. And if I could be the master of that process, that is, if I could raise my own animals and kill them myself, I'd probably eat them. But I live in a city, and I don't think my neighbors would really take too kindly to that. So I pass on meat. But despite the, the zest with which meat is consumed in North America, many, many folks who, you know, meat eaters are really squeamish around, you know, how an animal becomes dinner. And, you know, folks can easily, you know, pack in, you know, freshly grilled burgers, you know, the patties sizzling and dripping on the barbecue, but they would really be put off by watching, you know, an animal being impaled and thrown onto a fire. So, when I found myself teaching this, this section of, 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 of Leviticus, I figured, hey, you know, what, what the hell, let's, let's show the kitties what a real korban looks like. Nothing like a good old internet clip to traumatize the next generation. So, fired up the old interwebs, typed in Korban in Hebrew into the YouTube search window, as I had done when I was writing the book, and I expected that 10-minute clip to be the first hit. But it wasn't. And it wasn't the 10th, and it wasn't the 30th. It was gone. It was removed. Now, why would its creators, the fine, dedicated folks of the Third Temple Institute, remove it from YouTube? Well, it seems they didn't. They didn't remove it. And they didn't remove the other top hits either, though I guess if you hurry right now, you can catch a tirgul, or practice, of the slaughtering of the, of the uh, Korban Pesach shot on what looks like an iPhone. Get it while it's hot! I'll post the link on the Facebook page as well, as well as the next Jew. But I should warn you, the crowd obscures all, their, all the juicy action. The reason why there are no clips about this kind of stuff on YouTube is because somebody flagged them as inappropriate and the fine, dedicated folks at YouTube took those clips down. And here's the rub. The 404 message informing, you know, would-be Corban fans, or in my case, those you know, very disappointed junior high Tanakh students, 
the message about why the clip was taken down. It was simply, you know, wasn't just flagged as inappropriate. The original clip was removed as it violated YouTube's policy on, quote, shocking and disgusting content. Which, in the moment, reminded me of something else. It reminded me, actually, of Shai Agnon. Shai Agnon lived in a small house in Jerusalem's Tel Piot neighborhood, and I actually came across it quite by mistake when I was wending my way through the neighborhood on the way to Ramat Rachel to meet my wedding coordinator. That's a story for another time. But uh, Shai Agnon, or Shmuel Yosef Agnon, is one of modern Hebrew's greatest writers. He published 24 volumes of novels, novellas, and short stories. Because of his penchant for revisions, perhaps out of dissatisfaction or perfectionism, there are numerous manuscripts and numerous variations of his most famous works, which means he has two very different versions of his collected works. One of them has 11 volumes, and the other one is 8 volumes. Now, why is this important at all? Well, Shai Agnon won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1966. And... He was also a Levite, and in his banquet speech, when he got the Nobel Prize, he mentioned this as it was a pillar of his Jewish identity and his imagination. For Agnon, you know, he drew a line from the songs sung in the temple, which was the parvenu of the Levites, to his poems and his writings, which in Hebrew, the word for song and the word for poem share the same word, shir. You know, I'll let Agnon speak for himself. He does it much better than I. As a result of the historic catastrophe in which Titus of Rome destroyed Jerusalem and Israel was exiled from its land, I was born in one of the cities of the exile, but always I regarded myself as one who was born in Jerusalem, in a dream, in a vision of the night. I saw myself standing with my brother Levites in the holy temple singing with them the songs of David, king of Israel, melodies such as no ear has heard since the day our city was destroyed and its people went into exile. I suspect that the angels in charge of the shrine of music, fearful lest I sing in wakefulness what I had sung in dream, made me forget by day what I had sung at night. For if my brethren, the sons of my people, were to hear, they would be unable to bear their grief over the happiness they have lost, to console me for having prevented me from singing with my mouth. They enable me to compose songs and writing. I belong to the tribe of Levi. My forebears and I are of the minstrels that were in the temple, and there is a tradition in my father's family that we are of the lineage of the prophet Samuel, whose name I bear. I was five years old when I wrote my first song. It was out of longing for my father that I wrote it. It happened that my father, of blessed memory, went away on business. I was overcome with longing for him and I made a song. After that I made many songs, but nothing has remained of them all. My father's house, where I left a room full of writings was burned down in the First World War and all I had left there was burned with it. The young artisans, tailors, and shoemakers, who used to sing my songs at their work, were killed in the First World War and of those who were not killed in the war, some were buried alive with their sisters in the pits they dug for themselves by order of the enemy. 
and most were burned in the crematories of Auschwitz with their sisters, who had adorned our town with their beauty and sung my songs with their sweet voices. And besides being a Nobel laureate writer and a Levite and a poet and a writer and a, and a coiner of Hebrew words, Agnon was also a lifelong vegetarian. Professor Shmuel Safrai, an emeritus professor of Jewish history at the Hebrew University, told the following story. Safrai also lived in Talpio, down the road from Agnon. Quote, We were returning from the synagogue on Yom Kippur afternoon, Safrai said, and, and he, that is Agnon, asked me to give him my arm. The day was bright and the air clean, yet the whole way he kept sighing, Oi, 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 how difficult it is to recall the smell of the sacrifices that the priests in the temple offered up today. And he was not being sarcastic. He really did wish to see the countenance of the high priest, as it says in the Yom Kippur additional service we had just prayed. Without it, he felt that the day really lacked something. But Agnon also wished that, as a Levite, when the temple was renewed and sacrifices were offered once again, he wouldn't have to witness the slaughtering of countless animals as dictated by the verses in Leviticus. He wished that there could be another way for a man to find a remedy for a pressing spiritual or emotional need or expiation for sin or to mark the Pesach holiday, etc., etc., besides killing animals. As Agnon also said in his banquet speech, when speaking of the influences on his work, Lest I slight any creature, I must also mention the domestic animals. The beasts and birds from whom I have learned, Job said long ago, who teacheth us more than the beasts of the earth, and maketh us wiser than the fowls of heaven some of what I have learned from them I have written in my books, but I fear that I have not learned as much as I should have, for when I hear a dog bark, or a bird twitter, or a cock crow, I do not know whether they are thanking me for all I have told of them, or calling me to account. I wonder if one could say the same for the lowing of the cows, or the bleeding of the rams and goats as they were led to their deaths, quote, that there may be an acceptance on his, that is, the donor's behalf, to effect ransom for him. <laughs> As always, you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash TanakhCast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T. Or at thenextjew.com, or you can leave a comment or question or comment at the iTunes Store, or at Stitcher Smart Radio, or at SoundCloud. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join me. As always, you're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 26 on Leviticus chapters 4 through 7. Y'all come back now, yeah?